Hey, if you're new here, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, thank you for coming to City Church. Thanks for being a visitor here today and uh, a guest. And thanks, uh, if you would, take a moment. There's a guest card that is in your program that you could fill out, and we would appreciate it if you'd fill it out and drop it in the offering bucket later on when we take an offering. If you're new here, that's really all that we want from you. And what we'll do, if you, if you would do that for us, what we'll do is we'll put you on our mailing list, our email list, and we send out a weekly email just kind of tell you what's coming up uh, the next Sunday in the church. And then we also have a, a little thing. We call it Think, and it's uh, something that we do each week to try to help you think through the gospel and culture. And this past week was, uh, I don't know if you read it, there was a reference to uh, Downton Abbey and the show Downton Abbey and some things that had happened on that. And so I think, I think if you knew, I think you would dig that. So if you would, um, just fill out a guest card and put it in the uh, offering bucket in a moment. Um, let me tell you about a couple things that are coming up. Uh, we're, I'm going to start a class. You, you guys know, like, after the Super Bowl, you know, the week after the Super Bowl, you, like, you're wondering, well, what am I going to do on Sunday afternoon? Because football's over. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so I'm going to start a class that starts the week after uh, the Super Bowl. It'll meet here at the center Sunday afternoon, and what we're going to do is it's going to be a 10-week class on uh, the gospel, and we're going, to, we're going to be going through what the gospel is and what it's not. And I'm going to tell you something. This is for people that are new to the faith, and this is, people, this is for people that have been a Christian for a long, long time. Because I think that there are probably more, there's more confusion around what the gospel is with Christ followers uh, or there's at least as much confusion with Christ followers as there is for people who don't know Christ. So we'll be doing that on Sunday afternoons here at the center. We'll tell you more about it in the weeks to come. Uh, we uh, announced last week a new ministry that we uh, launched called Second Chances. And it's a ministry to help people as they transition from incarceration back into just everyday normal life. And if you would like to be a part of that ministry Man, we, we just think that's an important ministry. If you'd like to be a part of it, as you leave today, there's a table out there that says Second Chances, and you can find out more information there. Next week, the principal from Lincoln School is going to be here, and um, she's going to take just a couple of minutes, and I, I know that one of the things she wants to do is express her appreciation to you. Uh, we just encourage you to be here. Uh, I had a meeting this last week that was just really exciting. We're going to be telling you some more about things that we're going to do with Lincoln School in the next few weeks, but... Um, be here next week and just tell her how much you appreciate her, too. We would love that. And then finally, if you're not in a community group here at City Church, one of the best ways to get involved at this church and get to know folks is through our community group ministries, groups of people that meet at homes, uh, eight, ten people meeting in a home. Uh, sometimes Some of them meet weekly. Some of them meet every other week. And they meet around these videos that we do called I Am Second videos. And they'll watch a video, and then they... There's, we give them questions, discussion questions, and they just discuss those. And it's a great way to get to know people. You can sign up to be a part of a community group or just find out more information. There's a table out there that says uh, community groups, and you can check that out. Let's say a word of prayer before we look into the scriptures. Pray with me, would you? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for the opportunity to worship this morning in song. And, uh, man, some of those songs minister deeply to my soul. And, Lord, I want to be a person who would follow you wherever. And I think all of us do. And, um, Lord, would you quicken our hearts with that? And would you transform us into the kind of people that will follow you wherever? And, Lord, I do. I want to pray for Dana and Julie. And I pray for wisdom as they go about this process um, of, of treatment. Uh, just give them wisdom. Lord, uh, I, I made a commitment a long time ago to pray for the mayor regularly here in our church, and I do want to pray for Mayor Winicky. I, I know that 
There are many decisions that he has to make. We pray for wisdom. Uh, We want to pray for endurance. We want to pray for his well-being. And we pray, Lord, that he would know that that you love him, that you care for him, and that as a, a mayor in this city, that he is a servant of yours. And we pray that he would look to you for wisdom. Speak to us now through the scriptures, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to welcome uh, in those, of, uh, those folks who would be listening to our podcast this morning. We're in, a, we're in the third week of a series called Time for a Change. And what we've been talking about is the gospel method of change. A lot of people get confused about the gospel. They think that the gospel is just about how to get into heaven at some distant point in the future. But that's not true. The gospel intends to bring profound transformation into your lives in the here and now. Uh, I don't know if you've ever spent much time thinking about the people that you admire the most and why you admire them. But for me, the people that I admire the most, what I admire about them is that they're hungry for personal change. There's something refreshing about them. They're not as enamored with themselves as many people seem to be with themselves. Uh, there's a refreshing honesty about their own shortcomings, not, not in like a low self-esteem kind of way, but in an authentic, candid kind of way where they're able to admit fault quickly and they can receive criticism without uh, going into a death spiral later on of guilt and shame and anger and all of that. They also seem to be less judgmental and more compassionate because they're very realistic about their own shortcomings. And so it makes them uh, less judgmental and more compassionate. But the honest truth is that those kind of people are very few and far between, even in Christian circles. And the reason is that most of us, I think you would agree with me on this, most of us spend an enormous time Uh, an enormous amount of time, an enormous amount of energy defending ourselves against criticism and rationalizing our behaviors to other people as if, like, it's a life and death matter. Like, if if I admitted that I'd done something wrong, it would be, like, life and death. Honestly, how many of you uh, like if, if you had a spouse or a friend or uh, a co-worker, someone that came to you and they said, listen, I need to talk to you about something that I want to challenge you on. How many of you would, could, could just say, please, tell me more? And if their criticism had merit, how many of you could just own it and if necessary, ask forgiveness and then just walk away from the conversation without plummeting into a deep, dark valley of shame and guilt and and, uh, self-loathing and all of that. How many of you could do that? Back in the 16th century, a a German monk by the name of Martin Luther launched the start of the Protestant Reformation, and he did it with a document that was called the 95 95 Theses. It was a watershed moment in, in human history. And the first of those 95 Theses said this. It said, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. And what he was getting at, what Luther was getting at, among other things, was that the cycle by which a person experiences the kind of substantive change that the gospel wants to bring into your life is through a continual process that moves you constantly from repentance to faith. Repentance to faith. Repentance to faith. It's a cycle. All of life is repentance, he says. And that you're constantly doing this where you're moving from repentance to faith. He said it's impossible to change 
without continuous repentance. But to most people, because of the way that we tend to handle criticism and, and the fact that we're rationalizing and defending ourselves against it all the time, to most people, that idea of all of life is repentance, that sounds like death. Because for most of us, most of us it leads to loathing and self-loathing and guilt and, and shame. The problem is, though, without, without repentance, you can never start that cycle of repentance and change that's necessary. Excuse me, repentance and faith that's necessary to change. So today, what I want to do is, we, as we continue this series on, on how to change the gospel way, I want to show you two things today. The first I want to show you is... I want to show you what you need to be repenting of, okay? What you need to be repenting of. And then here's the second thing I want to show you, is how to repent without going into a death spiral of guilt, shame, and self-hatred, okay? So what you need to be repenting of, and then how to repent without going into a death spiral of guilt, shame, and self-hatred. Okay, and, it, and I will tell you something. If you will pay close attention to what, uh, what, what the Scripture is going to say to you today, I, I promise you this will change your life like no other self-help strategy or self-help guru ever could. I promise you. Okay, if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me back to the passage that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 22 through 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Three verses uh, in this passage in which Paul outlines the gospel method of change. And he does it very simply. Now, that's not to say that change is simple. Uh, It's not simple. It's hard work. But profound change is possible. And Paul says, here's the outline uh, for that change. And if you would, uh, start at verse 22. Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 22. The Apostle Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life, To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Then he says, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. In verse 24, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, uh, just just a little quick review for those of you who may not have been with us uh, or listened to the podcast uh, over the last few weeks. Quick review. The gospel method of change. Paul says there's two parts. And then there's a bridge. So there's one part, one part, and then there's a bridge that goes between those two parts. The first part is uh, put off the old self. Did you see that? Put off the old self. By the way, that's what Luther meant when he was talking about repentance. Repentance and putting off your old self, same thing. Okay. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to focus in on this first part, putting off the old self or repentance. We're going to talk about that today. Second part was Put on the new self. So put off and then put on. And by the way, remember when I was talking about the cycle of change? Repentance to faith. Repentance to faith. Repentance to faith. Well, putting on the new self is the faith part of that cycle. Putting off is the repentance part. Putting on is the faith part. We'll talk about that next week. Now, if you remember last week, I said that you can't separate the putting off and the putting on. Both of them have to be present. If you just put off without putting something on, whatever it is that you're trying to put off will always come back. It's like pulling weeds out of a garden and you don't plant anything there. What's going to happen? Weeds are just going to come back. Same thing. If you put off without putting on, whatever it is you're trying to put off is going to come back. 
But we also said that there's this supernatural aspect of the process of change. This is why the gospel always works if you apply it. Because there is a supernatural aspect of change that has to happen for profound, radical, substantive change to happen. And Paul describes it in this. He says, be renewed in the attitude of your mind. That's supernatural. We'll go into detail about that in the last week of the series. Okay, today, what we're going to talk about is we're going to start by putting off the old self. Repentance, okay? How do you do that? And first, remember what I said a little while ago I want to talk about is what exactly do you need to be putting off? Or repenting of? What exactly do you need to be putting off or repenting of? And I want you to notice again what Paul says here. He says, uh, he says in verse 22, Put off your old self, which is being corrupted. And then what does he say? He says, by its deceitful desires. If you, would under, if you have a Bible uh, with you that you could underline those words, deceitful desires, or if you have an electronic version and you could just highlight that in some way, do so, because this is very important, and this is where it gets very interesting. You guys remember I've said this before. I've said that good psychology is good theology. What? You remember? Made personal. Good psychology is good theology made personal, and this is a place that you can see this very well. Very often, when the New Testament talks about change, it uses this phrase. Um, sometimes it's translated deceitful desires. Uh, sometimes it's translated evil desires. Uh, sometimes it's translated selfish desires. And I think what it makes you think uh, when you first read it is it makes you think that there's this, there's this list somewhere out there. There's this list of bad things that you're not supposed to want. Man, it is so hot in here. And I tried my best today to wear a sport coat, and I can't get used to what... It's like today, 41, tomorrow, 1, and I don't know how to dress. Um, so I apologize. I'll just... Let me throw that down there, Chris. Now, if I get cold again, I'll make you... Okay. Deceitful desires, sometimes translated evil desires, sometimes selfish desires... Um, the idea here, though, is not that there's some list of bad things that you're not supposed to desire. That's not the idea. Actually, this phrase that's translated deceitful desires here in verse 24, it's just one word in the Greek language. Uh, Greek was, by the way, what the New Testament was written in. Okay? It's just one word. And it's the word, get this, write this down somewhere because this is an important word. It's the word epithumia, epithumia. Epithumia, which literally means, the epi part means over, and the thumia part means desire. It means a magnified, inordinate, excessive desire for something. But understand this, it's not, epithumia is not referring to a desire for something bad. It's not. Epithumia is referring to an over-desire, an excessive desire for something good. And automatically you say, well, what does that mean? Well, what this means, what this word epithumia means is addiction in a sense. And if you guys will remember earlier in this passage, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that Paul talks about people before they come to know Christ, and he says that, he says that they give themselves over, and what did he say? He said, to a continual lust for more. There's, again, the language of addiction. And he's saying that this... this if you've ever wondered, how could Christians deal with an addiction? How could Christians possibly have an addiction? Well, Paul is saying, no, it's very possible. 
Because he's saying here, now he's talking to Christians about change. And he says the problem is that you have these epithumias. These over-desires, these inordinate desires for something good. And so what Paul is saying is that these epithumias, what this word epithumia is communicating, is that what was destroying your life before Christ was an over-desire for something good that you were in bondage to. Here's another way to put that. Another way to think about that. Idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, idolatry is turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. That's essentially what idolatry is. Turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. And and what Paul is saying is that the essence of the old self that we keep having to put off all the time, is that it tends to take good things like sex or work or money, comfort, pleasure, relationships, intellectual pursuits. The old self tends to take these good things and it makes them ultimate things and it, it, makes, them, it makes them your life, it makes them your gods, the, the things that, that you have to have to give your life meaning and to give you a sense of identity. And as a result, you're in bondage to these things, these, these things that you have this epithumia for, good things that you've turned into ultimate things. And it's like, i got to have them or I'm going to die. I've got to have this. This is who I am. And I have to have this. Back in the Old Testament, uh, back in Exodus chapter 20, first of the Ten Commandments, listen to this. First of the Ten Ten Commandments, very clear. God says, I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before me. And it's interesting that it's the first commandment. Because it is the very thing that characterizes the old self. This tendency to collect idols. Epithumias. That we have to have. And I want you to understand that when God says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. I want you to understand that for every human being on the planet, there's only two options. Every human being. One is to worship the uncreated true God, or the other is to worship some other created thing, some false God. But there is no third alternative. Like if you walked up to the average irreligious person here in Evansville and you said, you said who do you worship? I'll bet you the average irreligious person would say, I don't worship anyone or anything. Not true. Everybody worships. It is not possible not to worship something. It's not possible to not build your identity on something or to not build your significance on something, not to not make something your life. It's not possible. We were all built to worship. We all worship something. And what I want you to remember here is that the Apostle Paul is describing the change process for a Christ follower. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought Christ followers worshipped Christ. Well, yes, we all do that. Those of us who are Christ followers, we worship Christ. But we still have deeply ingrained habits and ways of thinking and living that come from the old self from before we responded to Christ. And so even though it's true that we genuinely worship Christ functionally, there are other things in your life other than Christ that have taken title to your heart's trust. 
things that if you things that are still there that if you were very honest with yourself, you would have to say, "Man, I want to be the kind of person that follows you wherever you lead me, Lord, but honestly, there are some things that I feel like I can't do without. And they're like first place in my life. And you might find that those are the very things that keep you in bondage. So, so, so remember here. What I said that I wanted to talk about today was the first, the, the first thing I wanted to talk about was what do you need to be repenting of or what do you need to be putting off? And here's the answer to the question. Here's what you need to be repenting of. Here's what you need to be continuously repenting of and putting off. The idols, all of the idols that are in your life. Continually, hourly, daily. For me, sometimes minute by minute. Putting off this old self that is functionally trusting in things other than Christ for my identity and for my daily well-being. You see, what this passage is teaching, this, what this word epithumia is saying, is that you will never understand yourself. You will never understand your emotions. You will never make permanent changes. All the changes that you try to make will be superficial and temporary unless you understand this epithumia word and what it is that you idolize. Now, you say to me, well, how do I know what those good things are that I tend to turn into ultimate things, that my old self turned into ultimate things? What are these little gods, these little saviors in my life? How do I know what they are? Two tests. Let me give them to you real quickly. Two tests. Here's the first one. How do you know what these idols are? Here's the first test. What things, if you lost them, you wouldn't even want to live? Now, we could be talking about any number of, thing, any number of things here. We could be talking about your career. We could talk about we could be talking about your financial status. We could be talking about a relationship in your life. We could be talking about the approval of a particular person or a particular group of people in your life. We could be talking about the amount of power and influence uh, that you have. We could be talking about an infinite number of things here. The question is, what things, if you lost them, you wouldn't even want to live? And whatever those things are, those are idols in your life. Something that you've made your identity. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, how about the ability to have a baby? Are there any women that if they found out that they couldn't have a child, that it would be for them, like, I, would not, I wouldn't even want to live? Yeah, there are women like that. And some of them may be here. And there is nothing wrong with wanting a baby, wanting to have a child. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing unless you turn it into an ultimate thing. And if it's an ultimate thing, it'll crush you. How about, um, how about winning? 
Anybody here know someone who it's, they have turned, winning is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with winning. But anybody here know anyone that has turned winning like from a good thing into an ultimate thing? Where it's like, you, you don't just want to win. And it doesn't matter the game you play. You could play Monopoly. You could be playing apples to apples. Uh, you could be playing dominoes. You could be playing basketball. You could be playing football. It doesn't matter. Your team could be playing football. It doesn't matter. You got to win. You don't just want to win. You have to win. If you don't win, no one wants to be around you for a long time because you don't handle that well. And if you do win, you probably don't handle it well. Anybody know anybody like that? Anybody know anyone that would be willing to cheat to win? Anybody, willing, anybody know anybody that would be willing to take steroids to win? Anybody? Well, have you ever heard of Lance Armstrong? Winning's a good thing unless you turn it into an ultimate thing. And then it'll destroy you. If you have anything like that in your life, that it's like, it's not just, it's a good thing, but it's like, I got to have it, man. It's who I am. If I don't win, I'm nobody. I'm a bum. Anything like that? Like, you don't even want to live if you don't have it. That's an idol. Okay, that's the first test. What if you lost it? What if you couldn't have it? You wouldn't even want to live. Okay, here's the second test. Second test. Trace, I'm going to put it this way, trace the directional signs of your epithumias back to their source. Trace the directional signs of your epithumias back to their source. And I'm going to show you what I mean with an example. Okay. I want you to imagine a woman whose epithumia is a happy, healthy family. Now, there's nothing wrong with desiring a happy, healthy family. That's a good thing, isn't it? Unless it becomes an ultimate thing. And you see, this woman that I'm having you imagine doesn't just want a happy, healthy family. She has to have it. It's how she knows that she's been a good woman, a good mother, a good wife, if I have a happy, healthy family. And she can't see it so much in herself but she tends to control everybody in her family because she has to have a happy, healthy family. She controls every decision that her kids make. She's overly critical at times. She doesn't give her kids a chance to fail and learn from those failures because it, if they fail, they're not happy. And so she doesn't give them the chance to fail and learn. She criticizes her husband too much about everything, what he wears, how much money he makes, his job, what he doesn't do. She criticizes him about everything. And when something does go wrong in the family, she tends to uh, overreact. And she gets angry, and then she gets depressed, as if, like, everything is ruined. Because to her, her whole life has been ruined, because she's turned this good thing into an ultimate thing. She's been to the doctor a few times because she notices that she lives with a lot of anxiety. And in the moment, Xanax is often helpful. It genuinely genuinely is helpful. But it doesn't cure her anxiety. It deals with it for a while, but it doesn't cure it. And it's possible that if she were ever stop and think about all of the anxiety that she feels for just a few moments, she might realize that at least part of this anxiety is due to turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. 
A happy, healthy family is a good thing, but if it becomes an ultimate thing, look, that's a panic attack waiting to happen. Because she has to have it to live. For whatever reason, however, whatever way she learned that, maybe she picked it up from her mom, maybe she picked it up from her mom's mom, maybe she picked it up from the culture around her, maybe it was the church that she went to, that maybe, whatever it was, the, the culture said, you've got to have a healthy, healthy family. If you're a good mother and wife and a good woman, you will have a happy, healthy family. That's how you define it. And that's become her epithumia. Now, she follows Christ. She loves Christ. But she's got to have this. You see, the directional sign of her epithumia is anxiety. And just like, just like physical pain is the body's warning sign that something's wrong, so anxiety also is a warning sign that there's an idol in your life, something that has become more important to you than Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ, if he's the first, if, if he really is functionally the first in your life, he won't give you anxiety attacks. He won't. You, you'll never have to worry about Jesus. Jesus will never turn you into a self-loathing, guilt-filled, self-hating, uh, anxious human being. He never will. Jesus will never do that. But having to have a healthy family, a happy, healthy family, having to win, having to have a baby, having to have financial success, having to be this particular, uh, have this particular career, having to have anything else, anything else, It'll crush your soul. Anytime you come across in the New Testament a list of negatives, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't like to read the Bible because it's got so many negatives in there, so many no's. Well, understand this. Anytime you come across a list of those negatives, understand that what they're doing, they're directional signs to an idol in your life. Here's an example. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 8. Can we put that up on the screen? Okay, so read this as if all of these are directional signs. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger. Read that as a directional sign to an idol. Rage. See, keep that up there for just a minute. Like, if you have, a, if you have an idol, or let me say this. If there's a good thing that you want and somebody gets in the way of it, what, do you, what happens? You get ticked off. I mean, we all do, right? If it's an idol, it's rage. <laughs> if it's an ultimate thing, what you feel is rage. You don't just feel a little ticked off. You feel rage. I mean, truth be told, if you could do to that person who's in the way of you getting to your idol, if you, if truth be told, if you could, you'd lop their head off like that in a heartbeat, wouldn't you? Rage. Malice. You know, when you get so angry at people, you want to do something mean to them. Slander. I mean, you're willing to say stuff about them. Filthy language. You begin to say stuff like you wouldn't ordinarily say. Don't read those as you should not. Read those as directional signs that are helping you to identify what are the idols in your life. What are the epithumias in your life that are causing that? See, that's what it's trying to do. 
What you have to understand when you come to a passage like this is it's this passage, like Colossians 3.8, is saying trace those signs back to their source, to the idol, to the epithumia, and then put that epithumia off. Repent. Put off. Repent. This is what it means to put off the old self. To put off the old self means to be continually... It's to put off that old self that is continually turning good things into ultimate things. This is why Luther said all of life is repentance. We're constantly having to do this hard work of repentance. Putting off the old idolatrous self. Because we all tend to return back to the things that we know. And see, you'll never experience change. You'll never understand your emotions. You'll never harness your out-of-control lusts. Until you understand that all of life is digging out these idols that are in your soul that would destroy you. They would crush your soul if they can. And look, next week we're going to talk more about it. But, but look, I, I, I wanna, we're going to talk about what it means to put on. Okay, We'll talk more about this. But look, let me just give you a little summary of what's to come. What you need to be able to do is be able to take those good things that you've turned into ultimate things, and you need to be able to look at them and say, look, you're a good thing. It'd be nice to have that. It'd be nice to have you. But you are not my life. Jesus Christ is my life. He's my identity. And as long as I have him, I have all that I absolutely need to live life. And see, that's freedom from bondage. Being able to say, you know what? Okay, for those of you who are single, and maybe for those of you who aren't, who's the woman or the man that you're like, man, if I could have her, if I could have him, man, (laughs) my life would be set. What if you could say, you know, it'd be nice to, but I don't have to. Or what's the career or the amount of money, or the home, the amount of security, the number of children, that it would be nice to be able to have. But you could say, I don't have to have it. Because Jesus Christ has become my identity. He's number one in my life. That's what putting on means. That's freedom. That's what Christ wants to give you. It's freedom from bondage. It's very simple. But you're going to have to do it for the rest of your life. This digging up of these idols that are in your soul. How do you know what those are? What what if you couldn't have it? Or if you lost it, you'd want to die. And then you trace the directional signs of your epithumias back to their source. Back to the idol that's causing those things to happen. Now, I want to close with this. Because I promised you I would talk about this. How do you get to the place, you know, we're talking about repentance. It's continual. It doesn't stop. How do you get to the place that you don't fear repentance? How do you get to the place that, you know, look, here's the thing. If if repentance always causes you to go into a death spiral, how do you make that stop? How do you you get to, because if you do, like if it makes you go into a death spiral all the time, you will never repent. You'll be one of those people that's always defensive, never able to take criticism, uh, never apologizes for anything. How do you get to a place 
that you don't fear repentance? Here's the answer. Here's the answer. Take your sin to the cross, not Mount Sinai. Take your sin to the cross, not Mount Sinai. And let me explain what I mean by that. Take your sin to the Mount Calvary. Don't take it to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was the place in the Old Testament where God gave Moses the law, or the Ten Commandments is sort of a summary of the religious law that God gave to the nation of Israel. And the purpose of the law was to reveal, really two things. It was to reveal the character of God, how holy he is. But the purpose of the law also was to reveal the tendency of humanity to worship false idols and then to show us the ramifications of that for society. The the law pointed people to our need for Christ because no human but Christ could ever live up to the law. And the penalty of violating the law, of course, was death. The wages of sin is death. The reason, though, that so many people get defensive and they're always rationalizing their behavior and they're afraid of criticism and and repentance leads them into this death spiral of shame and guilt, the reason is, is that they tend to take their sins to Mount Sinai. If you take your sins to Mount Sinai, you know, uh, metaphorically, you know, where God gave the uh, Ten Commandments to Moses, if you take your sins there, it means that what you're really doing is you're thinking of the danger of your sins. Um, how messed up your life is going to be because you did this. And you think about all of the punishments that are going to come down on you because you did that. Well, let me tell you, that's not repentance. You know what that is? That's self-pity. Do we know anybody that struggles with self-pity? Do not answer if you uh, are thinking what I think you're thinking. Uh, Self-pity and repentance are two different things. Self-pity is thinking, what a mess my sin got me into. And it's thinking about the consequences of this and what a wreck this has made of my life and and how God's probably going to get me for this. He's probably going to punish me for this. And all the problems that this is going to create in my life, that's self-pity. And as a result, here's what happens. The power of the idol stays just as present in your life, but you end up hating yourself. You end up ashamed for being so stupid to have done whatever it is. On the other hand, repentance is when you say, this idol that I have, why do I have this? What is this doing to God? What did it cost God? What does God feel about this? And when you begin to see the effect that this idol in your life has on a loving God who loved you so much that he died on the cross for you and he, he made you brand new so that you could put off those idols, when you begin to think about that, that he didn't want you to have to be in bondage, that's why he died on the cross for you. It begins to melt your heart and you begin to hate that idol and it begins then to lose its attractive power to you. And instead of hating yourself, you start to hate it, that idol. And so slowly but surely, that idol, just like the Roman Empire, gets crushed by the cross of Jesus Christ. And do you feel bad when you 
come across these idols in your life? Yes, you do, obviously. But you don't, it's not a pathological kind of bad. It's not a, I hate myself. I'm so horrible. I'm so stupid. I'm so bad. How could I have done that? God's going to crush me for this. It's not that kind of pathological thing. Instead, it frees you. Because instead of making you hate yourself, it makes you say, God, I want to be free. Thank you for making freedom for me possible. Thank you for showing me this, this thing in my life that is, that's, that's crushing my soul. I don't want that in my life anymore. See, that's what happens when you take it to the cross. When you take your sins to the cross, when you take them to Mount Calvary instead of Mount Sinai, it means to preach to yourself that Christ died to forgive you and to make you holy, not hateful of yourself. He died to free you from bondage. And that's when repentance becomes freeing and not a death spiral into shame and to guilt and to self-loathing and self-hatred. Martin Luther said all of life is repentance. The Apostle Paul says put off that old self that's in bondage to idols and learn to be free through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to put off. Next week we'll talk about what it means to put on. Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you today. How great you are. Willing to die on a cross for my sins. Willing to die on a cross for the sins of every person in this room. Lord, if there's a person in this room this morning that has never placed their faith in you, I pray that today that they would respond to the gospel, that you died on a cross for their sins, that you were raised again from the dead so that they could have new life. Lord, for those of us that know Christ, that we've responded to the gospel before, Lord, would you cause us today to begin to put off the old self? Would you reveal to us those idols in our lives and how they're crushing us and how they're destroying us and how they keep us in bondage. Would you reveal those things to us? Lord, we want to pull them out. We want to put them off. We want to repent. And Lord, we're going to take them to the cross. We're not going to take them to Mount Sinai anymore. We're coming to the cross with them. And Lord, would you give us a sense of freedom as a result of that? And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and that we pray. Amen.